Hi, I'm Will Heinmarch, and I'm a gamer because I love it when uh, imaginations collide during play. It's not enough for me to uh, be reading stories or writing stories or watching movies, whatever it is. I love the moment with a, of creation when it's all too hot to handle and it's still molten and it's moving between everybody's heads like lightning and you don't know what's going to happen next and anything is possible. And uh, also, and this is the real thing, is uh, I'm a big enough nerd that I don't think anybody else would have me. So I'm Will Heinmarch and I'm the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. VorpalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is sponsored by Gamerati, It's Good to Be a Gamer, Continue Magazine, a gaming culture magazine about all sorts of gaming, and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon store. Welcome to The Tome Book Club, Spinner of Lies. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. This time we'll be spinning a web of lies with Andy Meyer, and joining us later will be the author of the book, Bruce Cordell. Andy, welcome back. Thank you very much. And if you want to join us for our next book in July, we'll be reading Skin of Shadows by Marcy Rockwell, our first Eberron book. That's right. In fact, it's my first Eberron book ever. Like, really? I've, I've had people contribute reviews and things of Eberron books, but I've never read an Eberron novel before. If oh, I read man. it, it would be my first novel, too. Wow. I've read Eberron novels before. Anyways. Well, you th- then you, we will have an interesting uh, experience where you will be the expert and I will be the newbie. I'll be the expert by one or two books. <laughs> Good enough. All right, but before we get too far, let's be sure to thank our sponsor, Continue Magazine, a magazine about all things gaming and all types of games, from video games to war games, card games to RPGs. Issue 2 just recently came out, and it's full of all kinds of great gaming goodness. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. We're back, and it's time to talk about Spinner of Lies by Bruce Cordell. So, Spinner of Lies. It's about, you know, a lady who really likes to knit. She's always, uh, you know, spinning. She's not an old lady, though. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Spinner of Lies, what's it about? It's friends in... In the Forgotten Realms. Friends in the Forgotten Realms. Yes, it is. I was just joking because he has a pretty cool apartment with the skylight and the coffee table. Which he acquired in the previous book, although that's not necessarily important to know. I know. The first, the first book of the series, he just sort of sh- he shows up with no memory on a slab in the middle of the wilderness and, and owns nothing. 
that that's what I had wondered. I had not read the first book, so I'd wondered if uh, it was still this current incarnation of this deva. Yeah, it's all the same incarnation, which which is actually part of as we see more and more in this book, part of what's making a lot of his character development possible. You know, they sort of imply that the previous incarnations never had much of a chance to develop as characters and become different people because of this uh, magic item, this ring, the the whirl of of Ion, which gave him a bunch of his memories back from his previous incarnations. So he always ended up being the same person. In this incarnation, that ring hasn't shown up. And so he doesn't have any memories of his previous incarnations other than occasional sort of flashes of memory. Right. Um, And not only has it not shown up, Damascus isn't sure he wants it in this book. Not anymore. Yeah, I I, I, I feel like in the first book he he would have welcomed it because he just really wanted to know what was going on. Now I think he's he's developed into his own person, and he feels like if if he has gets all those memories back, it will destroy who he is in favor of who he was, you know, and he and he doesn't want to be destroyed. But he does want the knowledge of his powers back, which is also in the ion. Well, and I feel like he would he would welcome having the memory of his previous lives if he thought if he felt he could do that without it erasing his personality, you know. Right, because there's a lot of questions he has and enemies that he that he wonders about whether he has an, or not out there, um, and I, so I feel like he would welcome that knowledge. But he likes who he is, and he feels like his previous incarnations, from what he can tell, did, don't seem to be as moral as his as he currently is, and he doesn't like who 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 he used to be. That is exactly how I read it. Uh, he. Uh he wasn't the nicest guy before, but he was uh, also manipulated a lot. Yeah, we definitely get to get that start getting that impression in this book. Um, is that like we didn't in in the first book because I don't think either one of you read it. Um, in the first book of, of about him, you don't really get that impression. Like you don't realize that he was manipulated. You know, you, you just sort of sort of feel like he just kept being approached by gods and taking these jobs and, and, you know, kept on doing what he was doing. And he, and he knew what he was doing the whole time. Um, now we start to realize that maybe he didn't always realize what he was doing because uh, Sirik is, is involved and Sirik is the god of lies. Right. Yeah, he had a very... Um, I don't know how to put it. Uh... I want to say kind of like black and white view of the world. Like he was good because he was doing what the fates said to do. And he hadn't even considered the possibility that somebody could change that. Mm -hmm. He he assumed all the contracts he were given were righteous until, uh, ironically enough, a, a, uh, a minion of the, uh, Prince of lies told him that, uh, no, he was lied to. Yeah. Yeah. And it, that just that whole storyline just really struck me because of the number of like lawful, stupid type characters that I run into in D anD D, where they they never consider that possibility, and here we have one that's considering it, and then and and expanding out, and his right and wrong world becomes very gray. Mm-hmm. Well, e- even to the point that. You know, he's always sort of felt like what the contracts he takes from the gods, even the evil gods, he he could take contracts from because it's all serving the larger, the larger uh, goals of fate. This this sort of entity out there that he sort of imagines, or or consciousness that he imagines called fate, um, and 
even that concept of fate starts to be pretty seriously challenged to him in, in this book, where maybe fate isn't a thing. It's just a collective series of circumstances. I mean, it, it starts to even question whether there is a fate. Right. So fate d- may not be an actual thing. It may just be, you know, these are the things that happen, and you're just, you're just working for the gods all along. And if you did bad things in the name of the gods, then you still did bad things. Right. And he start, he's starting to have to come to terms with that. I mean, to the point that he killed his former lover. Like, he genuinely fell in love with somebody and then got a contract to kill her and just sort of assumed, oh, this is horrible. But the gods want to give me a contract for it, so it must be the right thing to do. Right. And now his current incarnations, you know, obviously wouldn't do that because he believes in in higher ideals. He didn't have that whirl or or that, that ion. To uh, impress upon him that that uh, that he just does what the gods tell him to do, and he doesn't question it. Mm-hmm. And then, so we see that struggle that he has between uh, him, his current self, and this belief that he should always just follow the contracts of the gods, and that that, that they were just part of fate and, and right. And then also the struggle between uh, himself and his title. Mm-hmm. Because when he becomes a sword of the gods, he becomes a different being with its own, with his own, with uh, wants, needs, desires, mm-hmm. and everything else too. Well, to the point that at one point um, he he comes back from one of his sort of visions of his previous life and doesn't even know where he is or what incarnation he is for a while. Right when he was buried in the cave, <laughs> and he has the vision of fighting the the. Uh, what are the cataclysm uh, dragon or apocalypse dragon or whatever it was. Um, yeah. About the apocalypse dragon, which ended him at one point, right? They killed him. Right. And so, yeah. and, and he ended that life buried in, in rubble and he, he was currently buried in rubble and he sort of came out of that vision. Like, Oh wait, am I that guy fighting the dragon or am I, I have these other, I, you know, memories of this guy fighting the drow in this cave and he couldn't even figure out who he was for a while. Right. And then when he's talking, I mean, Fossil kind of bangs on him eventually pulling in that power and then being able to convince the sort of gods to, to turn sides, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, and see, that was uh, getting Damascus to switch sides was sort of uh, Kalkin's hinted at goal all along in the first book as well. Um, Kalkin sort of says, you know, you can thwart me, you can stop me, you can defeat all these evils. It doesn't matter because I have a plan and eventually I'll get to you. Eventually you're going to turn and then you'll be a Rakshasa like I am. And so there's this larger threat that, you know, no matter how many times you defeat me, all I have to do is can, is is win once and, and it's all over. Now, now Kalkin was created to balance balance Damascus out. That's what we discover in this book. The, the, first, book, the first book doesn't make that clear. And uh, given that this information is coming from Fossil, is, is that a lie? That Kalkin is there to balance him out? Mm-hmm. It absolutely could be. I mean, ultimately, anything that Fossil says could, not, could be completely false. At the same time, we got a lot of information from Fossil that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's one of those situations where sometimes the best lies are 
the are, truth. are true, but may not be the whole story. And some of that also came from the necromancer, though. Right. Well, that's a, that was an interesting um, concept in the story too. These paintings. Yeah. I really like that. That the uh, that Ogma had a bunch of children who be specialized sort of in becoming masters of knowledge, you know, as demigods becoming masters of knowledge in one specific subject area, and then they got tra trapped in these paintings. So now there's these whispering paintings that um, called the Whispering Children that they're out there in the realms, but that are absolute experts in something, you know. And the Necromancer one in particular is very interesting because the way it's created is through these other smaller paintings mm -hmm. that. Are, are tied together to form a face in a extremely disturbing sort of way yeah <laughs> yeah there was and i really like the the little author's note at the end and there were several little stories and things at the end that i thought were really really cool and useful for understanding sort of where some of these things came from and bruce tells the story about going out to an art gallery and seeing was it picasso uh that was rembrandt's rembrandt's maybe okay i'm not a an art um aficionado but he, but he was, went out to an, to an art gallery and saw some, some art that disturbed him as a viewer of that art. And he thought, you know, I could use that, you know? And, and so he sort of gives us an insight as to where he got the inspiration for the necromancer. I, I, I did envision Picasso-style paintings when I, when I was reading descriptions of the uh, sure. necromancer. Yeah, I could be wrong. Uh, I, for, I forget at this point. Yeah. I, I would believe either one of you at this point. It does say Picasso. Ha! I win. Ha. See, I kind of, I've kind of pictured more um, Rembrandt style, and that's probably why. Because a lot of Rembrandt stuff has dark backgrounds. Okay. But Picasso is awesome. I was just Im imagining, you know, the Cuba stuff where it's all. Oh yeah. Messed up. Yeah, yeah, and it definitely makes sense for the Necromancer. And now you have completely exhausted everything I know about art. <laughs> now. The the thief was cool too. Rotana? No, the uh, the, the the one of the whispering children. The, the thief. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But going going to Rotana, I I sort of felt like Rotana. Rotana is a cool character. Uh, Enchant is a cool character, but I didn't feel like either one of them were nearly nearly as cool in this story as they were in the last one. This story was much more focused on Damascus and didn't didn't deal with deal as much with the storylines of his friends. I mean, there were definitely stories elements that were really important for them, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I didn't feel like they sh they they sh shined as much. Uh, that could be why I, I didn't particularly care for any of the characters. Mm -hmm. I also struggled with them because this has not come off as a very balanced party. Because Rotana comes off as a thief or as a rogue. And Chant comes off as just a different build of rogue. So I'm not sure. You know, we've got a, what, an assassin, a rogue, and a rogue? And uh, a mage, sword mage, or whatever the queen is. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was only, I have a hard time considering her to be part of the, quote, party, because she was only with them for... The I, excursion into the mines. Right. Well, and I guess afterwards, too, she, I mean, she, she did a lot, <laughs> but, but I don't know. In my head, I have a hard time feeling like she's part of the the party because I know she won't be around long term. Uh, see, see, yeah, for me, it's like it's like Doctor Who. If you're in the TARDIS, you're a companion. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. I really like the uh, the the sort of concluding moment of the whole story, where the, you know they they've saved the day, everything's over, they've won, um, so to speak, and 
then they're they're all sitting around and they've recovered the the re- slowly regenerating body of Kalkin. <laughs> and they're sort of discussing, well, what what do we do with it? Like, if we just kill him again, I mean, he, he's still dead, but he's slowly regenerating. He's going to come back, and he's the big bad guy. But if we just kill him again, he'll disappear and regenerate somewhere else, and then we won't have him in nowhere he is anymore. Right. You know, do we lock him up in the vault and just leave him there forever? No. Then he'll kill himself, and then just do the start all over again. Do we put him in a you know? They start brainstorming all these different ideas about what do we do with Kalkin to keep him out of the way so he can't hurt us anymore and it felt a lot like um really really common and interesting sort of conversations that happen in a D game to me you know it felt very authentically dungeons and dragons to me that whole conversation in in in, in the best way possible yeah i was i was trying to think of like magic items that might exist in the world that could mm-hmm. <laughs> keep him alive so he doesn't kill himself but still take him out of the way. And then I actually was starting to worry, though. I mean, if what we find out about him is true, that he's the balance, do we have to worry about uh, Damascus getting too powerful? Yeah. And see, I have I have some suspicions based off of how some of the things we've learned in this story and who's involved, like Sirik, mm-hmm. that Kalkin may, may have been created with the purpose in mind of making him a balance. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that all of the gods sort of decided it was a good idea. You know, it could have just been a handful of evil gods that said, "Yeah, let's create this balance to to keep this guy in check." Right. Because True. Rakshasa are by their nature evil. <laughs> you know, and I have a hard time imagining a a good section of a pantheon of 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 gods saying, "Well, yes, let's create this powerful uh, <laughs> demon thing and and or devil thing and putting it out there in the world because that'll do some good for us." You know. I agree. So I think there's some more there to that whole balance thing that we don't we haven't gotten the whole picture of yet. Anyway, with that in mind, uh, they could both just be tools of the evil gods, with the good gods not having anything to do with it. So, and what good gods would have an assassin anyway? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the whole uh, concept behind the Avenger, though, isn't it? As a class in fourth edition, is that sometimes the gods need some some dirty work done. They call in the Damascus team. <laughs> team Damascus. <laughs> And of course, Team Damascus is just Damascus. <laughs> up until up until now, anyway. Although, although he's been in the realms for a long time, mm-hmm. the implication is now in my head. When I first sort of uh, was reading this, the first story of Damascus, I sort of had it in my head that he he had been in the realms before, but also gone other places. Like different incarnations didn't necessarily reincarnate into the same world. Like he might die and then come back in Greyhawk and then he dies and then he's you know somewhere else wherever he happens to be needed, is where he sort of reincarnates to. Um, so, by that logic, you could argue that maybe he hasn't been in the realms for very long, but he has been a long time ago. You know, one of his he, he's had incarnations in the realms in the past, um, but maybe he went other places in between. I guess we just don't know. No, uh, my I'm sorry. My my impression from this book is, is once he came to the realms, he stayed in the realms. It certainly feels more that way now. But I, I mean, I guess ultimately we we still don't know. I, I mean, that's still vague enough that we could mm. find out otherwise. And I like that he's being you know he's being tied to some of the the old realms history. Right, the, uh, a lot of this storyline deals with Madri, who is his former. Um, love interest, or, you know. I, I want to even say fiance, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. If they were actually, you know, engaged to be married or whatever. 
Um, but it was that sort of a, uh, of an important relationship, and she was uh, an ancient or uh, a Haruin dignitary from before the spell plague. Before the spell plague, oh yeah, because Halrua post spell plague doesn't exist anymore. So it was at least a hundred years ago, and theoretically could have been much much longer. Halrua has been around for a long time. I think there were a couple of references to a hundred years ago. Or- mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And he forced me to learn a new word. Which one? When he described her station, yeah, in, in Halrua, was it started with a P? Uh, Planus Barrier. Yeah, that's oh, the one. Yeah, that one. I, I thought you, you you were talking about the uh, platanium or, or whatever, uh, arambarium. No, 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 arambarium. I, I assumed was just something they made up for the. It was the it was the the MacGuffin. Yeah, the the, the unobtainium. Yes, exactly right. Exactly, that's exactly what it was. No, but this, the, her title, Madri's title, was a new word because you used it several times. And luckily, uh, the Kindle app has a built-in dictionary functionality, so I could just sort of highlight it and it would pop it up. So, oh, okay, that's what that is. I find myself using that more and more these days. Yeah. Um, and I also like. We, sorry. What do we think of the uh, subplot, the sub story with uh, the uh, rise of the Drow subplot? <laughs> okay, good for you. <laughs> in, in, the, in the conversation I had with Bruce, um, I referred to that as the A-plot, and he, he disagreed with me. So you agree with him that, that the Drow storyline is, is the B-plot? Well, for, actually for me it was the A-plot because this is my only contact with these characters. Well, right. I, it, it, and I, I sort of tried to, to explain to him, uh, and people will hear this in the interview later, um, that – I felt like those were the drow were the a villains, you know. In terms of villains, the drow got most of the screen time, so that's sort of why I felt like they were the a plot. That's weird because I mean, I guess they did. The vampires got a fair bit too. It's yeah. just um, if I had been given this book and said this is a standalone book, mm-hmm. I would have thought, yeah, definitely the drow. That's the a plot. But knowing that this is a part of a series, I could definitely tell that that they were this book's villain of the week. Well, right, and and that's it. I like that that turn of phrase because I was just, I was just going to compare it to like watching a season of Buffy. You know, if you're watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, each individual episode can more or less stand on its own, and it has right. it has its own a plot, and that that is the story. That was the the story of the Drow. That was the story of this of this book. But meanwhile, there is a B-plot going on in those Buffy episodes that, when tied together with the rest of the season, makes one overarching storyline. And I feel like that's what's going on with the Sword of the Gods as well. There's one overarching storyline that is the development of this Damascus character. Um, But in this specific book, the main story was largely dealing with the drown. Mm. Although I I like how they even keep mentioning that they kept putting off going to the drow part to do some other stuff first. They did. They kept well, and and it, and that that also felt um, in in every good way like a D and D campaign, right? Because eventually the DM, or in this case the queen, decided she had to show up and say, "Look, knock it off with your stupid side quest. This is important. I gave you something to do. <laughs> Go do I only it. prepared this this week. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> enough with the emo vamp- vampires." They, they were the C plot. I, I'm surprised that such a huge number of vampires live in the middle of Airspur and nobody knows. Well, it, it, it wasn't just 
two or three vampires. It was hundreds from the sounds of it. Yeah, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that it was hundreds. They're definitely tens, I think. But yeah, there's dozens maybe of vampires. And they're all sort of in this organization part of this house, House Norja. They're not there anywhere because they're stuck in... Well, but that was only... Uh, that wasn't all of them. I didn't get the impression that was all of them. That there's still more back in the house. Just a strike oh, yeah. force. Yeah. But, but it was just funny that they kind of are stuck there and we just don't ever hear really hear about them again, I don't think. No. And we may not. Um, although there are... This would not be the only um, potential threat that was left behind that could come back to, to haunt them. And, that, and one of them was, from the first book was brought up a few times, alluded to, but then never... Never dealt with, and that was uh, the fire mage Chevish. Okay, Chevish was was a is this completely insane wizard that they confronted in the first book because they thought he might be responsible for the big things going on. It turns out he was completely uh, he wasn't doing anything related to that, and right. so, but he got crazy mad at him. And so there's several times that they sort of bring up, you know, one of these days we're gonna have to deal with this Chevish thing, you know. I, and I felt like that was an, a, an a good way for the author to sort of remind us, yes, there is this other threat. No, I didn't forget about it, but no, I'm not dealing with it right now. You right. Know? So that it could come back in the future or not, but it's, a, you know, it's just stacking up more enemies. You know, we've already got Kalkin, which keeps coming back as, as an enemy. Uh, we have, now, you know, we had Chevish who could come back someday as an enemy. We've got, now we've got these, uh, these vampires that could become a problem in the future. You've got Renegar, the, uh, the, Thief master, if you will, guild master of the thieves guild, if you if you want to go that route, um, who is a c- consistent threat and could come back and cause problems in the future. So there's a lot going on. Um, and, and there you have enemies. another connection to a tabletop D and D game. What, what's that? Uh, collecting enemies and oh. having a, a handy list nearby. Uh I did. I also did like the uh, relationships, though, like the father-son relationship. I don't see that as often in books. So, uh-huh. so that was kind of cool. And and Chant was much more self-aware and introspective about his relationship with the son. Mm-hmm. Like like he really showed how good he is at sort of reading people and mm-hmm. and knowing how to and how not to react. Like he right. knew, he knew if I if I if I act this way it's going to push him further away or he's going to react this way or, or what have you. Um, now he would Jaw the son would still regularly react poorly to whatever whatever Chant did, but I don't think that was because Chant was being a bad father or making bad choices as a father. I feel like Jaw was just a pain in the ass kid. I think there was a fair bit of that. Now, now I think Chant maybe has made some mistakes in his past. With Jaw, but I don't feel like in in the context of this book he was making mistakes on how to deal with Jaw. I, I couldn't get a good fix on how old he is because at one point it said when he was eleven this happened, but then it didn't say how much time had passed between. How old Jaw is? Yeah, I mean, is, uh, he, is he an angst teen or is he? Yeah, I was I was going to put him at sort of uh, late teens. Yeah, late teens, early twenties. I mean, because he's old enough to know a bunch of stuff of different things. Like mining and because he likes to read like his father. Yep. But we uh, don't. But we don't have to deal with Jaw anymore. <laughs> Most promising character of the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. Oh, not true. He was never. There, he never really seemed to do anything. He never really seemed to go anywhere. He becomes really important for about one chapter, and then we don't have to worry about him anymore. I don't know if that's true. 
But oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's hint that maybe uh, fossil changed them a little bit. Oh, see, I I'm not convinced that we're done with fossil, but I think we're done with jaw. Okay. We'll see. It's it's, um, it's, it's D&D, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nobody ever has to be dead forever. Right. The, the whole story runs, revolves around someone who's not dead forever. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> and I, I did find it kind of funny, the winks and nods in the relationship with Rol, Roltana to, uh, I'm forgetting her name. Car- Carmen Air? Yeah, Carmen Air. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's, um, and Roltana definitely fits into um, a Greenwood, I think, inspired vision of the realms, right? Greenwood has always sort of dis- uh, described the realms and sexuality in the realms as being um, fairly fluid, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and Roltana certainly seems to play that role because she has a an extremely important relationship to her with Carmen Air. That she's desperate, you know, everything she's doing is all about trying to salvage this this relationship um, with her. And at the same time, there's you know moments where she's being flirtatious with Jaw. Right. Although, like, I never, I never felt right reading that that she was interested. It was just more. She was more responding to what he was doing, right? Yeah. Out, out of habit. For, is what I. Kind of took it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I almost expected one of the characters to tell Jaw that he was breaking up the wrong tree or something. Oh. <laughs> no, they had a lot more fun just thinking that he was barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> yeah, and actually, uh, Carmen Air barely makes an appearance in the first book uh, as well. She continues to sort of just be this, this. I mean, she's an important figure for the story. But more as an object of Roltana's desire, not as an actual character. Right. She did, she does briefly show up in the first book, um, which works out pretty well. You know, I was really kind of hoping she'd end up joining the party because I'm a big fan of having a well-rounded party, and she was a cleric. So, now, is the first book where Roltana stole uh, her um, uh, friend's uh, portrait there, or was that no, in that's between all, books? That, no, that's all backstory. That's before the first book. Oh, it was before the first book. Yeah. So she's been pissed at her quite, for quite a while then. Yeah. No, the, uh, Roltana is introduced in the first book um, when when Damascus is getting, I think it's the, the veil. Uh, the, was it the veil of, of wrath and knowledge? Mm-hmm. He's getting that from Chant. A previous incarnation of himself had left it with Chant with, you know, I'm going to give you a bunch of money and you just hang on to it until I come back for it someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he left it with Chant, and he, and he managed to find his way there and managed to get it back, and then walks out the door of the pawn shop, and Roltana shows up and steals it and runs away. Uh, flies away, actually. And Great. so our, our first introduction to Roltana is actually her as a villain. So Chant's either pretty old or this our incarnation is really new. Yeah, I don't... I mean, uh, Damascus himself sort of implies that his gut is that a reincarnation takes about two years, right? Because he, he specifically yeah. sort of says – in fact, he says that about about um, about Kalkin, that he sort of – for some reason, he expects it to be about two years. He's not sure why. It could be six months. It could be four years. It could be much longer or much shorter. He, he doesn't really have a good reason, but his gut is that it should be about two years. 
And, and so he'd put off dealing with that threat. Right. Procrastination. So, but that but that means it doesn't necessarily have to have been that long since he dropped stuff off with Chant. It could have just been a couple years ago. So, very few of these characters are human as far as I can tell. Just yeah. Chant? Just Chant and Joel. Yeah. That's, that also kind of, I, I don't, I'm not, I guess I could just say it bugged me mm-hmm. because I kept forgetting that. Right. I mean, I feel like he did a really good job with making it clear that, that it was a diva, a diva mm-hmm. with the multiple lives sort of thing. But I kept forgetting what Rotana was. I, I think also um, he expects you to know what Gen- Genasi are. And he expects you to know what sure. the different ones are. Because th- those were not really explained at all. No, he goes into a little bit more detail that with that in the first one where he's establishing the setting. But mm-hmm. yeah, he doesn't do as much of that in this one. And that's that's why I, I com- kept forgetting in, in between the times he mentioned that they were Genasi that they were Genasi. Right. Well, and, and Rotana didn't like a, she didn't take as as much of the spotlight in this book, and so it's it's easy I think to, to forget. You know, in the first book, she's doing a lot of flying around and a lot of sort of internal monologue about the the freedom of of you know coasting on the wind and that kind of stuff. So you you definitely understand her connection as a wind soul to the air. Um, I, I feel like Damascus, while he is a deva, and, and they make it very clear that at the same time, he's probably about the most human of the characters. You know, he's the one that, that we're meant to relate to, or at least this incarnation of him, right? Because outside of, outside of his skin and his tattoos... He he's very human, right? They're not bringing in all these all these weird, you know, cultures and and powers and that kind of stuff. The powers he has come from more, you know, from his his background, his 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 class, if you want to put it in the game terms, right? It, I don't feel like they come from him being a deva. So right. I feel, you know, his story arc is one of humanity. All right. Well, I killed the conversation with that one. I, I was just thinking about data. About data? <laughs> From uh, Star Trek. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So any other thoughts on this book before we go off to talk to Bruce? Anything else we wanted to share or, t- or mention? Do we think there's a... Mm-hmm. Do you guys think there's a, a connection to uh, names and cities? If that's important. Dam- Damascus is a, is a city. Oh. Well, it's sitting in the real world, you mean? In the real world, and and Madri is one D short of being Madrid. Uh, I would not make that connection. Okay. Not saying it doesn't exist, just saying. I it. D- I did do a little bit of of, of research because uh, the name Madri seemed important for some reason, and there is a uh, I think it was a Hindu uh, legend that deals with a character named Madri. Um, which it makes it, I mean, Rakshasa and Deva, as as they exist uh, right now in D- Dungeons and Dragons, um, have Hindu basis behind them. So that that makes sense. That's all I got. Should we wrap? Are we done? Sure. I think so. All right. Let's. Uh, Go ahead and toss it over to Tracy and myself, talking to Bruce Cordell about the book then. So, welcome to the Tome Book Club, Bruce. It's great uh, to get a chance to chat with you. 
I'm very happy that you guys uh, thought you would like to read this book, and I'm glad that you brought me in as well. And this is the second book in a – well, it's kind of in a series, right? It's certainly about it's, the same characters. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a series in the sense that you have to read what happened at the end of last book, and it's a, it was a cliffhanger, right? It was uh, that story ended, and now the story begins, and it's a new story with the same character. Um, however, there are you know aspects of the storyline which uh, you know are sort of you know picked up and and, and moved forward with, but it, it's nothing uh, nothing. It's not like a trilogy or a, or a duology, anything like that. So so just sort of um, in your in your mind, be, being as concrete or esoteric as you want to be, what is Spinner of Lies about? Well, like you say, it's it's a story about the character, the characters, of course, but um, the main the main character is Damascus, and um, the story one of the one of the main threads is his, uh, you know, how you can have a character who is both so potentially powerful. And yet, at the same time, human and capable of of uh, of having these uh, you know terrible things happen to him, and wondering about his own identity, all these past lives he he's lived, and if you know, even despite the fact that he can come to life once again, you know that will be a different person, and this 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 personality, this 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 life he's living now is like very precious to him, and it's basically you know following his exploration into what it means to be himself. Uh, if he can escape uh, the uh, the the crimes, essentially of, of some of his former lives, and at the same time, of course, um, uh, he actually has uh, enemies, uh, very powerful enemies from pre- his previous lives, which are working against him. Not to mention some of the crimes of his past lives in the very manifest form of a haunting <laughs> of someone he killed coming after him, and of course, it's all wound into. Uh, how drow are coming up to the surface of the forgotten realms and uh, trying to work uh, some terrible uh, uh, ritual, and they need. Uh, and in this case, they're looking to uh, gather some very potent, um, I guess you would say, components to uh, further the ends of Lolth and uh, back back in uh, the Underdark. <clears throat> and so it turns out that they're caught up in that as well. Damascus and Rultana chant. Arathani and the others, Madri, and uh, try and def- uh, prevent that um, eventuality from occurring as well. At least, at least in this particular case, uh, to stop the uh, component from being gathered and brought back uh, to the deeper Underdark. So that's kind of a rambling description of what the book is about. But uh, there we go. Are you guys still there? Yes. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm pausing to give Tracy a chance to talk. Oh, okay. Okay. See, see, if she, see if she has questions before I move on. I have a long list, so. Oh, okay. You do have a long list. Um, so I guess one of the things that I found really kind of interesting is we're bringing the drow in, and the drow in this book really bring out that uh, man-hating part of of their, their culture. Uh, but I, I found that was an interesting uh, juxtaposition with the city they're in, where it's like a queendom and everything else too. And I was just wondering if that was intentional to to provide that or. Um, I, I definitely see that uh, the uh, the like like you say the queendom is very obviously very uh, you know women centric to that fact. I mean that the it was actually founded by a queen and it was passed on to a queen, um, and there was never a patriarchy uh, in this particular city. 
I wouldn't say it, it turns out to be a, a, a great juxtaposition. Um, as so many things happen in, in novel writing, it seems to me there's so many synchronicities that kind of happen. And this, this is one that you, that you've noticed and you're, you're definitely right. However, uh, the, uh, I, I chose this place to write about long before, you know, in Sword of the Gods, before I ever knew that there was going to be drought in this, in this book. <laughs> nice. Okay. Which, which actually, um, goes to one of the questions I was going to ask. This, this story ties into a larger Underdark themed event going on with Dungeons and Dragons in general this summer. That's cool. Um, and the previous Damascus story, uh, Sword of the Gods, was tied to the Abyssal Plague, which was also a larger, um, especially novel-based event, but there were some D&D tie-ins there as well. Uh, is that sort of the plan with the future of Damascus stories, is to continuously do these things that tie it into other larger events with little, little one-shot things? Or is there, is there ever going to be a Damascus story that's just you know a Damascus story? There, there's certainly no definitive plan that every Damascus story will have to have a tie to some larger event. In this, in these two particular cases, it just made sense because uh, it, it worked out well that it that it, it that it could work out well in that fashion. And these event these these forgot these Faerun spanning events um, easily were um, uh, amenable to being touched upon by someone of the sort of the gods' office and level of power. So. It worked out well, but yeah, there's certainly Damascus has enough of his own issues and interesting uh, plot threads that he he's, he doesn't need any of these uh, uh, these world-spanning things to to have to have a, in order for another Damascus story to come out. Mm-hmm. That is not the plan. It could end up happening, I suppose, in the future, but it is certainly not. Uh, that's not how the character was. Um, that's not how I how I see the character or how is this this the series of potential books that could follow was 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 initially planned. Sure. And do you do you are you concerned at all that that you do run some risk of you know storylines not sort of filling out to, to satisfaction? You know, um, the Damascus stories, the, the really Damascus centric stories, like with Calkin and all that, tend to be sort of the B stories. Um, Although probably the most revealing to his character, and then at the same time you have like uh, the story with the drow in this book, where um, the goal was don't let them get this this relic, and then by the end they kind of got away with it, at least part of it, right? And, well, inter- and we don't really see where that goes. So, and go ahead. Oh, sorry. I would actually I, I would have characterized it differently. I would have said that the uh, the the drow story and the other story in the first book were the B stories and the A stories are the stories with Damascus and Culkin and Madri, um, and and Riltana and you know pretty pretty much all the characters and their threads. Sure. Um, uh, Chant and his son. So uh, and and the, these events that are occurring, you know, that are around them certainly are important and you know are are significant and you know do do take place in the book, but I. I, I kind of see them as actually secondary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, hope, I mean, they're both important, but I see them secondary to. No, the- no, and 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 don't get me wrong. I I would des- definitely agree. The A story is the development of the characters, and there is development of the characters uh, happening through both stories. Um, I, I was characterizing it A and B based off of the interaction with the villains involved in each each segment of those stories. If that makes sense. Oh, sure, totally. Yep. Did I answer your question then, or did I just... No, no I think that's fine. Okay. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, for me, one of the big things about talking about the characters together and developing their stories was just how their home life seemed so normal. I mean, there's even a coffee table and the skylight and, and other things. And, and was that awesome? was that something you did to try to make them seem very normal, even though they were doing these things that were crazy? That that's right. I, in order to make these characters someone that you could read about and care anything about them, they had, despite the fact that you know they have on call some pretty amazing abilities, they had to also be people, right? And they had to have experiences, uh, and they had to live a life that you and I could, you know, uh, uh, be familiar with, and identify with. So, and that's why Damascus, for all he may. Have had these amazing past lives which are larger than life you know that that continuity is broken and he is just like you know a, a person now who, who has these things he has to deal with as part of his personality but it's not his day-to-day -day necessarily you know like he has a uh, he's watching his friend's pet cat for instance so. yeah people trying to run out the door yeah although i have some suspicions that fable is not just a cat <laughs> yeah. I, yeah? I, I sort of have a a scene in my head that at the end of, of Damascus's whole storyline, however many books that is, whether it's you know three or twenty or whatever, right? That that he's going to reveal himself to be something else, sort of like um, um, the old wizard in Dragonlance actually being Paladine the whole time. Yeah, you never know, I suppose. <laughs> that name Fable seems too uh, too clear of a hint. I don't know. Well, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting idea. Uh, <laughs> I won't say one way or the other. Uh, <laughs> other than to say, hmm. Taking notes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, one of the questions I always ask when when looking at a book that's in a shared setting, especially The Forgotten Realms, because I'm a big Forgotten Realms fan, um, what have you done, or, or how? why does this story have to be told in the realms? You know, so, some Forgotten Realms stories feel like, you know, they found a way to make it work in the realms, and some feel like this is really part of the realms. Uh, you know, so why does this story have to be a realm story? Well, I mean, I suppose I suppose you could do some work to make it to make it not a realm story, but it's it's set in the realms because it's well, first and foremost, it's a story about the uh, D and D style characters, and which is basically realms. Okay, let me back up. <laughs> It's based on D and D style characters who have the you know who have these amazing abilities and heroic abilities, and one of the worlds that most personifies this style of writing is the Forgotten Realms, right? And there's not too many other places that that could that can encompass these sorts of characters um, with gods and people who talk to gods uh, and work as on their behalf. So right off the bat, you know, the Forgotten Realms becomes like one of the very few places that could handle a character like Damascus. Um, you know, second, you know, he has established himself in the lore of the Forgotten Realms in the first novel, and obviously, in any book where you're going to be fighting Drow, you know, once again, Lolth has <laughs> biggest things you can ever imagine in the realms, um, and with the story um, going forward of what Lolth's trying to actually accomplish with the absence of you know Mistra, it's an interesting. Um, it's it's it, it can only be told in the realm, realms, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, as far as um, you know, the specific uh, characters of Damascus and Roltana and Chant uh, and Madri, um, I, I, I set them in the realms, I guess. Um, I would say that 
you could probably, if you if you were a very studious person, to try and go off and and file off all the um, uh, uh, what are the word I'm looking for. You yes, you you could do the work and you could put them in a different setting, but it would it would be a different story. Mm-hmm. Very good, and I and I almost feel like. Um not to get too much into our, our book club discussion that will happen uh, at another time, but uh, I almost felt like th- this book is even more intertwined with the realms than the previous book. because And, and I guess that's not even true. We, I started to realize just how intertwined the story is with the realms in this book because we start to pick up all the connections with Sirik and Ogma b- plays a bigger and bigger role and, and all that, which, which all tie it into the realms a little more. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the entire reason Culkin exists is because in the realms, the gods decided they didn't want someone of Damascus's power running around unchecked, and so created the entire, you know, and and for for well or ill, and probably for ill, the the gods put a keeper uh, uh, on Damascus, the sword, so so called Culkin, uh, and that that has created this entire. Um, as you know, may subplot of this who, this person who has killed Damascus over and over. It's like a serial killer who only kills one person, and that's Damascus. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's you're right. There are a lot of inter- there are a lot of twinings with the realms that 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 would have been harder, you would have been harder pressed to create. And Sirik, being a god of lies, finds Kalkin you know easily uh, amenable to his. Uh, particular slant on on the way the world should work <laughs> Tracy I'll, g- I'll give you a chance to get a word in, in unless you want me to move on no go ahead okay uh, you also connected this story to uh, or at least I noticed it more in the story uh, to the larger D&D mythos as well uh, and I'm, I'm curious sort of what you do to sort of balance um that connection to the D and D mythos, you know, you uh, you bring in a, a connection to the Tomb of Horrors, and, or at least a little Easter egg mentioning uh, the Tomb of Horrors, and you bring in connections to uh, you know other gods that aren't Realmsian gods, uh, like Ioun. And um, I'm c- kind of curious, you know, how do you do that, and at the same time not feel like you're leaving somebody who's new to D and D sort of in the dark. Um, well, the, the the Forgotten Realms and and the larger D and D universe is a is a world of um, uh, parallel dimensions and 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 many worlds, right? And in the first book, we did we in fact learned that Damascus came from outside the uh, the Forgotten Realms cosmology, and I mean that's kind of part of the idea is like when he came in, he had to be uh, taken care of. So <clears throat> to that extent. There, there, are, there may be a couple of references to here and there to things that are outside the Forgotten Realms, which, you know, if you're not familiar with them, you'll say, oh, these are these are gods I haven't heard of. These are obviously from other worlds that Damascus has been. Okay, I accept that. If you're familiar with those other worlds and those other names, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm familiar with these other worlds. It's an Easter egg to me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> For someone who's unfamiliar with the Tomb of Horrors Easter egg, they'll just be like, oh, there's a – I wonder what that's about. Interesting. And for someone who is familiar, they'll say, aha, Easter egg. Um, and also speaking specifically of the Tomb of Horrors, um, you know, I, the Tomb of Horrors means a lot to me as a, as a personal game designer and writer and D and D player. Uh, but it, so I'm very familiar with it. And at the beginning of Tomb of Horrors, it essentially gives, you know, it's not clear hundred percent which world, I mean, you could say Tomb of Horrors could exist in such and such a world, but mm-hmm. there's 
you know, guidance for it to say it could be in the, the vast swamp, you know, in the Cormier. So up to the east there. So sure. It could, it could have very, it could have been in that world. It depends on how wants to read it. In fact, in my campaign, a Sarak was a former apprentice of Zaztam. So it worked out pretty well. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, now this was, those weren't the only Easter eggs that you sort of sneak in here. You, you very specifically bring in a character from a previous trilogy you wrote. That's true. Uh, and I, I, I was the whole time that we're dealing with Captain Thoster. I keep sort of looking for these little hints as to uh, his larger power, you know, because it's revealed at the end of his at the trilogy he's more involved in um, that he's a significantly more powerful entity than than he lets on. Right. That's true, but I but uh, as you're indicating, he doesn't ever let on in this book. He has any such you know. Uh, resonances, and we don't know why that is. I mean, maybe there's a reason why he doesn't, or maybe he's just, you know, doing something else on the in the meantime, and he just happens to be here for a port of call. One of the main reasons I wanted to bring in a character from one of my previous novels is because it's been my kind of call part time is that a character from a previous novel moves forward in the timeline. I mean, that's been true since my. Um, very first Bruce Cordell novel that uh, kind of a lesser character moved forward and be, well, many became a main a main character in the next novel. Um, I, I obviously Captain Thoster didn't become a main character in um, the Sword of the Gods books, but I wanted to indicate that that possibility of of interconnection between characters I write and all the novels I write is still alive and well, and so he was a nod to that. And you know, many people find him interesting. And so he, he, you know, he, he's, he has possibility of future stories just as any, all the other characters who survived that trilogy have possibility of future of stories. I was going to ask, are there plans that some of those characters might be become part of the, a more integrated part of the uh, Damascus storyline? Well, I, <clears throat> there are no plans to bring in any of those particular characters as, as part of the Damascus storyline or, or in and of themselves. But I, I do have... I do hold on to them in reserve as possibles, possibilities. Okay. It's, you know, I, it, it could, it could we'll say that. Sure. Or the, and there's several of them that I'd like to kind of find out what happened to them since then, but. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff F and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Interesting people. Well, I've got one question, but I want to, one more question, but I want to give Tracy a chance. So she I'm can't say, to... so she can't say she couldn't get a word in edgewise. No, I'm trying to think of something. I haven't, I haven't thought of anything else yet. Well, actually, I, I thought of just another one real quick. Um, as oftentimes, as I read D and D based novels, I'm trying to build things mechanically in my head and just sort of see how would I interpret this as a as a game mechanic. Not that I want to necessarily see the dice rolling, you know, in in the pages of the of the book, but how how would I do it? And Damascus troubles me. <laughs> Because in the first book, I sort of had him pegged as an Avenger because I thought that fit the storyline pretty well. Yep. And in the second book now, and, and you specifically call him this several times, I'm starting to think that maybe he could actually be an assassin. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're looking for a mechanical underpinning, um, I, would, I would say you're looking at an assassin-Avenger multi-class character. Okay. But the thing is with Aven- uh, excuse me, <laughs> Damascus, he also breaks rules because – he then classes, and he can sometimes, not always, 
uh, he can sometimes call upon you know abilities or classes that are not those, right? And he uh, he he he's a he's a de- he's a deva, and devas, uh, and but he's more he's more than even just a regular deva, right? He 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 breaks the rules of D and D in in many ways. Um, he, he he, but generally speaking, yes, he's you you caught on. He's an assassin avenger. Okay, and so and and the sword of the gods, the the epic version of Damascus. Is definitely a Punisher of the Gods Epic Destiny, yes? Uh, I'm not sure if you designed that if you designed that Epic Destiny. One of my players is is playing that Epic Destiny and it it's almost the exact same way that Damascus or the Sword of the Gods works. So I, w- I w- was wondering if that was intentional. I I possible. I've I have done this kind of work, but I don't I can't tell you right off the top of my head. I don't think I wrote it. I would hate to come back and find out I did write it, but I think that <laughs> I don't think I did. Okay. That's new. I'm sure of the gods, eh? Mm-hmm. All right. Sorry, I'm type. I shouldn't type while I'm talking here. I'll have to. I'll have to check that out. Okay. Tracy, last chance. I don't know. I just. I like the runes thing. Is that? Is that from anything else, or did? Is this new for Damascus? The the sword having the runes that uh, don't come back. It's new for Damascus. Um, I, I in the original book, I really liked the idea that. Um, even though he didn't have his original, you know, sword, his one of his storied implements of his his title as, as gods, such was the resonance of his power that even when he picked just some regular sword, the ghosts of those ruins would become manifest as visible, kind of floating over the blade, right? And so that's where it came from. It was like wow, and uh, what a great visual that would be, and uh, what a great story. And so then when he got his actual sword, you know, the ruins obviously stayed. And as we know, there's one set of ruins on one side and one set of the ruins on the other, which kind of hinted to the fact the blade has more than one configuration. But I also, you know, in, in, any, in any of these sorts of things, even though Damascus can break these rules, there has to be some rules. And one of the rules is that since he doesn't really know what's going on, when he uses up a rune, you know, as far as it's used up, right? And he's like, oh, I, I, I used up that rune now. I can't quite figure out how to get that back because I don't have access to my full powers. So that's that's why runes can then be used up as well. Very good. So, what about the future? Um, are, can you tell us anything about the future plans for these characters? Um, you know, are, are we going to see more from Damascus? I have um, I have a lot of ideas in mind for what what uh, will happen. Um, I would like to wrap up his. Uh, I, I don't want to say wrap up, but I but I have something in mind that will definitely bring kind of this this the current story arc to a, to a satisfying close mm-hmm. so uh, in a future Damascus book you could look forward to seeing kind of the uh, situation with Culkin and this 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 demos this this voice of the future that Culkin was um, using to you know make this this diabolical plan to see into the future that only he could use because of his ability to come back and remember his past lives. And uh, um, also the God of Lies, Siric, and Madri. I, I, yeah, I, I definitely have plans on how I'd like to wrap excuse me, all these things up. So uh, if, if you were to see a future Damascus book, you, would, you could look forward to that, that sort of uh, – that particular – many of these arcs anyway being resolved. Okay, so you have a plan uh, for the future of the story, but nothing's been contracted at this point. I have a contract to write a, a third book as well in the oh. series, or 
you know, series of books, um, not trilogy, like I said before. But um, I have have asked to pause it uh, while I work on other uh, non freelance related things. I don't know what else you would have going on right now. Jeez, busy yeah. <laughs> lately. Yeah. So, a, I wanted to you know take a break from from writing. And don't get me wrong, I love writing. I Wizards has trained me up. You know everything I know about writing I gained through my interaction with the editors that Wizards provided me over the years. Uh, I'm very grateful. Um, but I, I while I was working on this day job D and D related design project, I, I needed to take a break. Um, and uh, two thing, I, I kind of wanted things to resolve. So basically, let's just yeah, let's just leave it at that. It's kind of so it could, it could be a little bit longer before we see a third book. Yeah, well, it won't be next. It won't be like the next year. Like we, like most of my novels have been one year apart. Um, probably my next one probably won't be next year. Although I could write out a you know I can't write an accelerated timeline as well, depending on um, depending on what happens. Okay. But imagine you'll see another Damascus books next April, anyhow. Well, I look forward to seeing where it goes and uh, how this whole thing plays out and, and wh- where Damascus ends up. So, uh, you know, but at the same time, the other work that you're doing is probably very important to me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Yeah, double thread on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I I'm really excited about this book. Actually, I feel like, yeah, I, I really like this character, and um, I look forward to uh, doing more do, doing more with with all of the characters. Actually, I really like him and Riltana and uh, and Madri, uh, all all the characters. I, I I really like them quite a bit. So, looking forward to dealing with them more in the future. Awesome. All right, and that was Bruce Cordell. Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your editor, Sam Dillon. We have a treat for you. I am breaking in here to drop in some audio from longtime Tome Show contributor Jeffrey D. Wynn. He's been looking at some books that he has enjoyed reading, and we think you might enjoy them too. So sit back and relax, and then we'll return to our regularly scheduled Tome program. Hello. This is Jeff, the other Jeff, not to be confused with your host, Jeff Greiner. And today... I am not going to be reviewing a Dungeons and Dragons novel. Uh, when I agreed to do this segment, I said I didn't want to just review Dungeons and Dragons novels, but all novels that are related to gaming worlds and fantasy worlds of interest to gamers. So today, I'll be reviewing two novels in the Pathfinder Tales series the Varian and Radovan novels. The first is Prince of Wolves, published in August 2010, and the second is Master of Devils, published in August 2011. Uh, Both of these are by Dave Gross. The Varian and Radovan novels are named for their two main characters. Uh, Varian Jaeger is a half-elven nobleman, and Gentleman Explorer from Cheliax. Radovan is his tiefling manservant and bodyguard. Together, they fight crime. Varian is a member of the Pathfinder Society, a sort of worldwide adventurous club whose mission is to explore the world and bring back lost knowledge, to be kept and preserved by the Society. Varian is every 
Inch the nobleman, urbane, arrogant, well-read, and highly opinionated, yet he is also genuinely interested in finding knowledge and protecting innocent people, which makes him a hero. Uh, by contrast, Radovan is vulgar, uncultured, rough around the edges, uh, enjoys nothing more than a good snooze followed by the company of a good woman. He had a rough early life in the streets before he came to work for Varian. Uh, Dave Gross constantly plays up the differences between these two characters. In his unique writing style, uh, each chapter switches points of view. Uh, the first one starring Radovan, then Varian, then Rat back to Radovan, and so on and so forth. Uh, furthermore, uh, in these two books, uh, at least, uh, the two main characters spend most of their time physically separated by one another. So you really do see two sides of the same story. In Prince of Wolves, Varian and his companion are in the gothic, mist-shrouded land of Ustalav. Uh, think like a Ravenloft or a Castlevania type of setting. Uh, on the trail of one of Varian's missing Pathfinder colleagues. Early in the adventure, the duo is attacked by a pack of werewolves and they lose track of one another during the fight. Uh, Radovan learns, much to his surprise, that he undergoes physical changes when burned, uh, the fiendish side of himself sort of manifesting, causing him to grow bigger, stronger, and more scary-looking. Scary uh, Radovan has further dealings with the local werewolf population, who believe he is the titular Prince of Wolves. Uh, Varian's path takes him to a country manor house, suffering from an evil curse, and Varian must work through various uh, mysteries and intrigues to find out what is really going on. Uh, eventually, Varian and Radovan reunite in the middle of a mysterious haunted ruin, and their stories intertwine for the finale. Master of Devils is set in Tian Sha, the Asian analog continent that lies on the other side of the world from the main setting. Once again, Varian and Radovan are there on a mission for the Pathfinder Society, but they are separated in the first chapter when their party is attacked by bandits. Varian takes shelter at a nearby monastery and winds up being accepted as a student, despite having no desire to learn martial arts. Unfortunately, he finds he can't leave, and is forced to endure harsh training and the ridicule of his peers, who care nothing for his status as a nobleman. His story is largely one of self-discovery. Radovan's story, on the other hand, is more about crazy martial arts action. Uh, he finds himself bound to an evil sorcerer, Burning Cloud Devil, who wants Radovan to fight his enemies for him. Together, they travel across the countryside, having one battle after another. The third story follows the point of view of Varian's pet dog, Arnesant who winds up in a story kind of like an Asian fairy tale, with talking animals and nature spirits. If you've ever seen Princess Mononoke or played the video game Okami, you might have some idea what I mean. Prince of Wolves was a fun read. Uh, the, the back and forth switch between point of view was jarring at first, uh, but I got used to it, and from then on I couldn't put the book down. Uh, it helped that I was on vacation at the time, and so I had a lot of time to read. Uh, so that, that might have had something to do with it. Uh, Dave Gross packs so much personality into his two heroes, so they're both fun to read. 
Uh, Varian is a lovable snob. He's a bit like um, Sherlock Holmes, but with magic. Uh, and he's also a wealthy nobleman, so he likes things like wine and ballroom dancing. Uh, Radovan is an honest, hard-working guy with questionable taste in women uh, who just can't catch a break. Uh, sort of like uh, Peter Parker crossed with Indiana Jones and a bit of Hellboy. Uh, fortunately, he's a big, scary demon, so when a fight does break out, he can knock people around. Uh, Gross keeps the action moving. There's really not a lot of people sitting around having internal monologues about their feelings in this novel. I loved it, and I would recommend it to anyone as their first Pathfinder novel. I really can't find anything bad to say about this book. Believe me, I tried. Master of Devils was also good and full of brilliant ideas, but it also felt a bit too long for me. Uh, the three stories were not as tightly interwoven as they were in Prince of Wolves. Uh, Radovan's story was full of flash and bang, exciting at first, but eventually began to feel pointless. I kept wanting to go back to Varian's story. His interactions with the people at the monastery, including including the visiting princess and her entourage, uh, seemed to be where the real story was. Uh, Arneson's story, uh, too, was cute and fun at first. Uh, I mean, I really did like it, but ultimately it felt like it was going nowhere. Um, this book is noticeably thicker than Prince of Wolves, and I think some of the things could have been trimmed. Uh, that said... This book is still full of plenty of unique story ideas, exciting action, and Oriental Adventures-style flavor that you really don't get very much uh, that makes it a good read. Now, one thing lacking from these novels is prominent, strong female characters, uh, at least uh, main characters. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, another book to check out is Winter Witch, published November 2010. Uh, Winter Witch uh, does not feature Varian and Radovan, but it was co-written by Dave Gross and Elaine Cunningham, who Forgotten Realms fans will remember from the Daughter of the Drow books and others. Uh, Winter Witch features uh, Elisif, a barbarian woman searching for her long-lost sister, who was taken by witches as a child. Uh, so if you, if you like uh, Dave Gross's writing style... And if you like the Pathfinder Tales series, but you want uh, you want more strong female characters, I would definitely check out Winter Witch. Uh, all three of these books were very good, and I would highly recommend them. That's my review, and thanks for listening. Well, I want to say thank you to all of our guests today. Thank you to Bruce. Thank you to Andy for joining us. Andy, is there anywhere on the interwebs that people want to find you? Uh, A-W-M-Y-H-R on Twitter best place to find me very good and i also want to thank our sponsors continue magazine and gamerati uh, as well as all of you out there who uh, shop at amazon using the uh, amazon store link on the website and if you'd like to contact us you can email us at the tome show at gmail.com or call our biz line at 919 biz tome that's 919 b-i-z-t-o-m-e and you can find show notes with all the links and things on at thetomeshow.com. 
We have now woven a web of deceit only to find a deeper layer of untruths as we looked at Spinner of Lies by Bruce Cordell. Join us next month as we read Skeen of Shadows. I'm on the wall.